From Cambridge 105 Radio, this is The Business of Cambridge with Sue Keogh. Series 2, Episode 5, Cambridge versus Covid, is brought to you by our friends at CMR, out-of-the-box business thinking. Hello and welcome to The Business of Cambridge. If you're thinking about launching a new brand, our resident expert will be along shortly to share some essential tips. But first, the important role played by Cambridge companies in the fight back against COVID. I'm joined by Dr Patrick Short from Sarno Genetics, who are conducting critical research into long COVID, and Simon Q of Alchemy Technology, whose antiviral fabric was one of the first in the world to be proven effective against coronavirus. Patrick, tell me more about Sarno Genetics. How long have you been going and what's been your main focus? Thanks so much, Sue. It's really great to be here. So uh, we were founded in 2017. We raised our first um, serious external capital in late 2018. Before that, myself, Will, and Charlotte, my two co-founders, were students at the University of Cambridge. Um, so we've really been going for a little over two years now, um, full steam, strong as a company. We're, what we do and the reason we started is we felt like there was a, a real lag in the way that personalized and precision medicines are being developed in particular because they're so costly and time consuming to create. And a big part of that is actually that it's really challenging to find the right participants to take part in those studies. And the reason for that is that it's it's really not, frankly, very easy or very much fun to be a participant in research studies. We felt like there was an opportunity to innovate around the way that participants take part in research, including giving them access to better and easier tools, including online platforms to take part at home genetic testing and other kinds of testing. And ultimately, this would make the research itself much easier and, and more cost effective to conduct. A, a second big part of our values as a company and the approach we take is is that participants have full control and transparency around how their data is used, and they can see all that through our online platform. Um, so that's what we do as a company in a nutshell. As you mentioned before, we've been doing work in long COVID for the last uh, six or seven months. And we also apply our technology to a number of other conditions in autoimmunity, neurology, and, and rare disease, which is really what my background is focused in. So Simon, how about Alchemy Technology? What kind of products do you develop? Alchemy Technology, we're, we're developing some breakthrough um, manufacturing solutions to textile manufacturing. Our focus is on textile dyeing and finishing, which are two of the most polluting processes in the world at the moment, industrially. And we've really been developing some quite innovative new solutions to delivering antiviral fabrics into the market by using our Navara coating technology to demonstrate that you can create fabrics that are safer in terms of preventing uh, viral transmission, but also enable fabrics to be used as a way to reduce the risk of, of COVID in, in, a, in a few different ways, actually. And it sounds like you're quite a global company, that you have customers all around the world and you have maybe a global outlook. So did you get the feeling early on that something was going to happen with this pandemic and you might need to develop a product around it, or was it quite a sudden decision? We were pretty aware of the, the pandemic because we, we do a lot of work in China. So it's, we actually have an office in China. We saw very early on last year that was obviously affecting China quite significantly. And we also, you know, we were involved in supplying some PPE into China actually back in February of 2020. So we really got the idea very, very early on that fabrics could be used, you know, not only for the sort of obvious uses as face masks and the, as, as, as medical device materials, but also as a way to 
yeah, reduce transmission of the virus in public spaces and in protecting people from contact transmission. And how's the fabric being used now? Is it more in the health sector or is it face masks for the general public? So we're seeing quite a wide variety of applications. So the, the obvious one, which is consumer face masks, we've been supporting through providing coating services to manufacturers. So that's typically UK manufacturers who are constructing face masks in, in the UK. We're seeing a lot of interest from sportswear companies who are interested in ensuring their sportswear is safer, from transport companies looking to put antiviral coatings onto seating in communal places such as trains. And we're seeing a lot of general interest in hygiene, you know, so, so, so fabrics which are able to improve the level of hygiene in lots of different applications. And Patrick, can I ask you about long COVID? What does this term actually mean and, and when did people realise that it was definitely a condition worthy of research? There's actually still a little bit of um, lack of agreement around uh, a unified definition of long COVID. For some medical bodies, it's four weeks or longer of symptoms. For others, it's 12. The precise symptoms are, are also not yet agreed upon. And this has been one of the challenges from the beginning. Um, and, and I think was part of the reason that the condition hasn't gotten the kind of attention from the medical establishment and, and research that it probably deserves. If my memory serves, it was probably the summer of 2020 before there was widespread agreement that this is definitely something that that we should be focused on and concerned about. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a, a lot of question marks, frankly, around whether people who were developing long COVID should be believed or or whether it was, if it was hypochondria or something like that, which was a, really a shame. And it took, I think, the community a little bit longer than it should have to come together around it. There's a lot more research and focus and general acceptance that it's something we should be focused on and, and concerned about now. But um, it certainly took long, much longer to, to come on to than severe hospitalization as a result of COVID, which was in particular from the genetics community, the, the biggest focus from the beginning, trying to understand why some people end up hospitalized despite not having any of the expected risk factors like um, having an existing cardiovascular or, or metabolic disease. And what are the actual symptoms of long COVID? So it can vary from person to person, but it's typically prolonged fatigue, um, often neurological symptoms. Many people experience migraines, headaches, continued trouble breathing. The symptoms are, are quite varied. And actually, there's lots of research that's coming out that's beginning to parcel long COVID into different subtypes based on the variety of symptoms. But really, it's a it's a prolonged chronic symptoms after the initial infection. And, and for some people, it's six months to nine months that it's been going on if they were affected early on in the pandemic. And so really, it's a it's a novel disease in in all senses of the word. Um, and long-term follow-up is really important because it's no telling whether this will affect people for, for years or the rest of their lives or whether it will be a, a six to nine month odyssey for, for some people and longer for others. And how can they be sure it's actually long COVID and it's not symptoms of something else that's mimicking it? This is one of the open questions, I, I think, at the moment. And I think it's fair to say that the, the jury is still out. There are a number of different hypotheses floating around. There are similarities from a biological perspective to lupus that have been written, which is that lupus is an autoimmune condition. There's also a lot of similarities to chronic fatigue syndrome, which has been studied for, well, really understudied, but um, has been on our radar for much longer. So I think it's fair to say that over the next 
six, six, 12, 18 months, there'll be a lot more to say about the precise biological nature of the condition, but there's a, there's a few different competing theories out there. You're listening to The Business of Cambridge with Simon Q from Alchemy Technology and Dr. Patrick Short from Sano Genetics. So Simon, can you tell me a bit more about how you developed this antiviral product? And also, did you need to change it over time as new variants came in? So the product itself is, is a um, commercially available chemistry. And what we actually do with our technology is we apply it in a very precisely controlled digital way. So what that enables you to do is put this coating chemistry onto virtually any type of fabric. So what we were able to demonstrate is that we could put the antiviral coating onto many types of materials for many types of different products. There isn't really any sort of variant specificity in the action of the coating. The coating is really sort of broad spectrum antiviral and actually antibacterial. So it's really you know, future-proofed in terms of emergence of new variants and, and even new diseases. And how about demand? More and more people will have wanted face masks over time. More and more people need PPE. How have you kept up with the pace of demand? So, so we've seen a lot of um, UK demand uh, growth. So, so there's a number of companies starting up now to develop new face masks, new face coverings. We've been able to scale our business up in line with that. So, so we've started to offer contract coating services. We've started to place our equipment into some UK manufacturers. So, so, so we're really seeing yeah, quite a lot of growth in this area. And can we talk about the Cambridge ecosystem? So how significant is it for you both to be in this region? So you've got so much talent and experience around in life science and technology to call upon. Has that been helpful for you, Patrick? It definitely has. A lot of our initial funding both um, from investors as, as well as grant funding that we received early on as a company came from the Cambridge ecosystem, as well as some of our earliest customers and collaborators. I do think, though, when it comes to COVID and long COVID in particular, one of the most important things for us really has been branching out across the country and even across the world, but certainly the density of great biotechnology companies and, and talented people, not just in biotechnology, but in marketing, software engineering, product development that are so important for us as a company, um, you know, being being in Cambridge, the reason we decided to start up here rather than, um, than anywhere else in the world. And how about for you, Simon? Is that a factor in the success of your company? It's certainly a factor in terms of access to great talent. So in the Cambridge area, there's some fantastic um, scientists and engineers, and that, that's really, you know, what drives our company to a large extent. You know, so, you know, we, we've really been able to find some very brilliant people to work with us. In addition, you know, the ecosystem and the companies in this area that can support you to develop new products is exceptional. So we've really relied upon some very, very good suppliers in the Cambridge area who've helped us with, with many different aspects of our, of our product development over the last year or so. I'm interested in the investment scene as well. So Patrick, you've just received two and a half million in funding. And I was wondering, are people either keen to invest and support companies like yours at the moment? Or is it actually really competitive as lots of different businesses race to find different solutions? So it's actually hard to raise finance. It's a great question. I, so in terms of our relatively short fundraising journey as a company, we raised £500,000 in 2018, which came from Seedcamp, which is a London-based seed investor, uh, as well as a number of Cambridge-based investors, including Cambridge Enterprise and, uh, and Paul Forster, who's an angel investor, as well as a number of, of others. In this latest round, it was led by London-based Episode One Ventures, and, and we had most of the 
investors in the first round that that continued to invest more. Um, so for us, it's really been a you know strong Cambridge London axis of of investors that have been interested in what we're building as a company. I think because they understand the way that personalized and precision medicine is changing, and that we need new technology and infrastructure to to make that possible. In terms of the investment um, ecosystem more widely. I only have had our experience to draw on here, but I, I do think it's actually one of the easiest times in history to get started simply because of the amount of capital that's available, the various schemes that make it tax efficient for angel investors and other early stage investors to take a bet on a company in the early stages when it's just a prototype and an idea. I, I don't think that means that anyone can or should do it. You know, Raising money is a choice for you and, and for your business, but my understanding is COVID actually hasn't negatively impact fundraising, except probably in the industries like travel that are that are really in the eye of the hurricane or um, directly affected by it. But for us, I think people know that the technology we're building is important. It's certainly now when people are unable or unwilling to leave home, and it's something that I think we and others think will continue to be important in the future because taking part in research and making it extremely easy and, and straightforward for patients to take part is, is frankly something that we should have been focusing on for a long time. And COVID has, uh, has forced the industry's hand in, in many ways. So it's accelerated that, that change. I'm interested in these behavioral trends. Are you finding that people are more almost ex- expecting to be able to test at home instead of going to their GP? Definitely. And, and I think one of the slightly frustrating things is many people have been advocating this for a long time that we should make it easier for people to take part in research and it shouldn't be such a burden. But always die hard. And if there's not a, uh, if, if inertia has built up, it's really hard to get people to change. So I, I do think it's been a forcing function in that way. What, what we've seen as well is there's a lot of patients for whom it's really just unsafe for them to leave home. If you have a, if you're immunocompromised or you have a child with a rare disease, then leaving home for anything but essential reasons is really just not an option. And and it's important that research in things besides COVID continue. So, um, you know, researchers and patients alike are, are very keen to find ways to make it happen in a way that keeps everybody safe and allows the important research to progress. The other behavioural trend I was interested in, Simon, is around hygiene. The world has become more hygienic, both in the products that we buy and hand washing and all that kind of thing. Do you see that as being long lasting? I do, yes. So, so, so we've seen a lot of interest in, in our antiviral fabrics from apparel manufacturers, um, sportswear manufacturers, who I think all see hygiene as a, as a major consumer point to use, to, to market to consumers. And I think as awareness of hygiene has obviously grown incredibly over the last year or so, that this level of awareness will persist, particularly if there are further pandemics. But I think also just, just people's awareness of the propensity of, of germs to spread you know, through surfaces and through contact, I think will mean that people will be much more aware of, of the surfaces that they're making contact with. Um, and certainly any company that's making a product that has a contact surface, I think they, they will be interested in whether or not they can leverage hygiene as a way to market to their customers. And let's just look ahead to the coming years. What's on the horizon for you at Alchemy, Simon? We're really in, in, the, in the midst of quite an aggressive commercial rollout of our Endeavour uh, digital dyeing machine and our Novara uh, digital uh, finishing machine, which are our two sort of leading products. 
we're, we're looking very much looking forward to the return to normal business travel. So we have a, a large number of customers that want to come and see us and want to come and see our machines, which we have set up in, in Cambridge. We've been very pleased to welcome At One Ventures and H&M to our company recently as, as investors. Yeah, and, and we're very much um, in, in a in a growth mode for 2021. And what's coming up next for you then, Patrick? When are you going to see the first results of your research? We're looking forward to an exciting year from a business perspective. And I think just from a personal perspective, seeing all the vaccines getting rolled out is is really great. But from a business perspective, we're going to be a part of a number of different, both existing and new clinical trials and other research studies that use our genetic testing platform and an online platform. So we've seen over the last year, a lot of the researchers we work with that are shifting over their trial and research designs to be more at home, more more remote and more digital. So we're in, involved in a number of different exciting projects working on ulcerative colitis and um, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis and and a number of others. So looking forward to being a part of these groundbreaking studies and helping make them a reality. Um, from the long COVID perspective, we have a, a target and funding to test 3,000 people, and we're hoping to have that complete by the summer. And we're also applying for additional funding to be able to do DNA testing in more people. As your listeners who know something about genetics know that generally the more people you're able to test, the more likely it is that you'll find a, a genetic signal that helps to discriminate people who have long COVID or, or any other trait from from people who don't. So those are some of the big things on the horizon for us this year. And um, I, just in particular, really proud of our team who has gone from um, you know being in an office generally and working together to to going to a remote setting and and continuing to do incredible work. And so when you're out and about networking, or when we can all be networking again, do you define yourself as a scientist or a founder or entrepreneur or businessman or, or how do you call yourself? That's a, that's a great question. I, uh, I will typically say that I run a company that um, provides an at-home testing and online platform for personalized medicine. <laughs> uh, I do still identify as a scientist at times. I like to use the scientific part of my brain, but most of my day these days is, is really, um, you know, working with other members of the team and the business side of things. So that's, uh, that's my response. I'm, I'm interested to hear Simon's. So I'd probably consider myself to be a lapsed chemist. <laughs> I'd probably see myself really now as, as an innovator. So, so you know, my main focus is from the textile industry by delivering more sustainable solutions and really, you know, getting into an area which where we can have a big impact and so, so personally I see myself as an innovator although I would wouldn't mind doing a bit of chemistry I, I rarely get the opportunity these days <laughs> fantastic Simon Q from Alchemy Technology and Dr Patrick Short from Sarno Genetics thank you thank you Sue thanks very much you're listening to the business of Cambridge brought to you by CMR one thing we're seeing right now is people either changing their business model or starting something new altogether our resident expert, Rajan Mystery from strategic brand design agency R&B, has lots of pointers if you're launching a new brand but don't know where to start. What I'd say is there's a few things to think about. There's a strategic area, there's the creative aspect of it, and then there's the kind of, I guess, the delivery. And in terms of starting, what I'd normally say to people is think about your business, remind yourself why you want to start this. Because what you want to get to essentially is that good feeling around why you're starting this that's going to give you the reason or a reminder of the reason again as to why you want to start this 
so really you want to kind of get into the idea of what is distinctive about yourself you know people often ask themselves you know what's different and sometimes in this marketplace it's quite hard to find out what's different about you because there's many of us doing very similar things what i'd suggest is you know whether you've got a team or a few people uh, you know your friends or a team your partner whoever that may be it's just a case of sitting down and actually kind of reflecting on your business sitting down thinking about what you like about it what's good about it what you're thinking of doing what you don't like to do you know that's often quite easier to do and think about because again lots of people are doing things very similar out there but actually if there's something that you don't want to do you don't want to be inefficient for example or you don't want to be bold or you don't want to be brash or whatever that may be that's something you know worth kind of noting down and are you thinking about um, reflecting more on where the business is right now or where you want to be in six months or five years, that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you obviously start with where you kind of are just to get you going. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The question really there is, you know, what do you want to be even just in a few months time? Because sometimes by the time you launch, it might be three, six months time. So, you know, what's the market going to be like then? What are your competitors going to be doing? Because that's what you want to keep an eye on as well, is what are your competitors doing? Is anybody new coming out in the market? Are you going to have different competitors in six months' time? Is something affecting that market? You know, as we know where we are right now in the pandemic, you know, if you're in a business in hospitality, for example, you know you're going to have to kind of already adapt to that market and make sure that, you know, you're ahead of the game. So it's definitely worth looking ahead in terms of what you want to be doing. Mm. And what are those things that it's really worthwhile investing in early on? Let's say if you don't have much budget, there's a fitness place in Ely called Fresh, which is relatively new. And I think they must have spent a bit of time on photography right at the beginning. And that's been so useful to them because it's given them content to share on places like Instagram all the way through these lockdowns and changes in tiers. So what are those things like that that people can invest in early on when they're launching a new brand? It's a great point. Photography is really important um, in terms of if you can do your own photography, that's that's fabulous because I think a lot of people out there are looking for stock photography, which may not suit their business. And actually, there's lots of people out there and, you know, doing it yourself. You can take your own pictures. Um, there's a lot of kind of uh, information out there as to how to go about doing that as well. And alongside that, I would say, uh, you know, your words are just as important as the images that you kind of want to get out there. And so, Thinking about, again, back to your reason as why you exist, getting your kind of positioning right. You know, one of the things is, is having a really strong brand idea up front. Having that brand idea is going to set you apart. And also it's going to be something that you can always refer to, because what I often find is people don't actually know what their brand stands for. So, for example, you know, if you're selling shoes, are you actually selling shoes or are you actually creating happy feet? If you're in recruitment, are you recruiting scientists or are you helping solve the biggest healthcare issues because you're finding those scientists for those people? So there's lots of different ways to look at yourself. And I think once you have that reason and you actually write that down into a kind of messaging framework, that's something to really think about and, and build on basically. Yeah, I think that's really important for any business owner who finds that they've got people saying to them all the time, oh yeah, why don't you do it like this? And why don't you try this new audience? And, and why don't you try this um, this approach? So you you is this what you say to business owners then? You write it down and you've always got this core idea of what your brand is that you can come back to. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's what gives you then the kind of framework to kind of create anything else you want to do. Because basically off the back of that, you know, people often think about 
you know, the kind of functional assets of a brand, you know, like your photography and, you know, your words and things. But you have to remember that it's not just a visual experience. A brand is, is actually a, a broader experience than that. You know, it's about your products and services. It's about your behaviours in your business. For example, you know, how you pick up the phone, what you say to people when you answer the phone. It's about your environment, you know, where you're staying, you know, whether that's working from home at the moment. And, you know, people are kind of branding their, their kind of home environments as well. And it's all about your communications as well. So brand, you know, does kind of permeate into many aspects of your business. And people often kind of forget about that. And, you know, think about the logo being like primary thing that comes to mind, because I think that's the kind of, I guess, the, you know, the default thing people think about when you think about brand, you think about that original idea of a brand where it's kind of, you know, stamped on the back of a, of cattle which is what branding was about you know where they kind of seared the, the, the farmer's logo onto the back of the cow for example but that's the kind of thing that people think about so I think yeah what I'm getting at is you know whilst you've got your photography and your words and things like that having a thought about where your brand is going to live is really really important having that kind of core idea which you can refer back to and always kind of think about what you stand for because whenever you do something you want to kind of go well is that what we should be doing is that what we actually stand for uh, and that will actually guide you initially. And then, you know, once you get into the full branding process, all of these things will come out of that as you develop your brand, your messaging, your behaviours, the way you approach things, how you go to market. But you always have that kind of thing to kind of come back to. So that's kind of the strategic element, I guess, would be the good starting point there. Fantastic. That's really good advice. So thank you so much, Rajan Mystery from R&B. Next time, we're talking events and the massive shifts we've seen in this sector, plus insights from our property expert on the business of buying and selling homes. The Business of Cambridge was presented by Sue Keogh and brought to you in association with CMR, empowering you to achieve your full business potential. It's a TDC production for Cambridge 105 Radio, and you can find previous episodes on our website or wherever you get your podcasts.